Hello and welcome to Extreme Perspectives. This is a monthly podcast created by the Sense Network to bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. This podcast is for people who want to expand their mind and develop their creative intelligence. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. For 20 years, I've been seeking out people from the edges of culture, the creators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones. People who want to change things and push the human race forward. In this episode of Extreme Perspectives, I speak with the misfit, author, philosopher, and practitioner of mindfulness, Shamash Aldina. Shamash is an engineer by training, but knew it wasn't the right path for him. He shifted focus to teaching and practical philosophy. His journey led him to become a master of ACT mindfulness. Listen as we discuss the power of community, coping with anxiety, dodging cars, and the wisdom of Bruce Lee. Hi, Shamash. Oh, hi, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Very well. Excited to have a conversation with you. It's for us to talk about. So welcome to the Extreme Perspectives podcast. And as you know, I like to start with a very simple question. <laughs> I knew this question was coming. Uh, funnily enough, I actually wanted to call myself a mindfulness misfit. And unfortunately, the domain name was taken and somebody else had named themselves that. So I'd actually reflected on this uh, question years ago. And the reason why was because of, um, you know, one of the things that I spend quite a lot of time is, is teaching mindfulness and the way I teach it and the different aspects I bring to it and, and the kind of uh, teachers that we teach, they don't fit the normal mold. And when I, when I reflect on what, what makes our, our approach unique, there's all these different bits and elements to it. And so I actually wanted to call our group the Mindfulness Misfits, but somebody else had beat me to it. So I just called myself, you know, just call it Teach Mindfulness. Um, uh, but I guess you're going to, you, you probably, and I can, I can guess the next potential question is, you know, what, what makes me a misfit or why do I identify with that? You know, reflecting a little bit deeper earlier on today, ultimately, I do think almost everyone is a misfit. You know, the, the line is taken from that famous advert, I think it is. Uh, by come up by Steve Jobs and you know he was trying to reach as many people as possible but reaching many people by using the concept of things like misfits because people you know like this idea of being unique and being different uh, so ultimately I think everyone is a misfit and they all have their unique stories uh, as I do uh, in terms of uh, why I feel like a bit of a misfit in, in the field that I work in mindfulness first of all you know, I actually studied engineering, uh, and I guess I fit a little bit more the 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 mould in that sense. But having tried it as a job, absolutely hated it. Uh, I couldn't couldn't stand the the work that we had to do in an office. In fact, there was a, there was a card you had to swipe in and out to see how many hours you'd done. I used to swipe out for lunch so long that I ended up with a negative paycheck at the end of one of the months. So I knew that wasn't fitting into that mold. And then having tried uh, an evening class in the opposite of what I thought chemical engineering was, the opposite of chemical engineering for me was practical philosophy. So having done a class in that, um, I, I ended up discovering mindfulness and meditation. So, you know, I was the only engineer in the whole year group that said that they were you know, not going to go into engineering or not going into banking and actually going to go into becoming a school teacher where all the children do meditation. 
Um, so that, I guess, was a bit of a misfit, but it felt felt like it was a good fit for me. And, you know, I could I could carry on sharing more stories as we as we go along. But, yeah, I, I always feel uncomfortable when I feel I have to fit the mould too much. And I feel comfortable in a group of misfits, in a way. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's my that's my answer anyway. Well, hopefully you'll feel comfortable here. There are a few of us. And, and I think I, I, I do agree, everyone is a misfit in their own way. In fact, I'm probably more alarmed if, if people think they're not. But I, I, and it's, it's a good place to start because actually these are, the, these are the, the features, the attributes, the characteristics that actually define us and I guess allow us to make friends. Although there's often things that you, know, you have in common with people, it's the, thing, it's the unique things that we probably enjoy most of all about each other it's how we then define ourselves right once we found out our groups that's true yeah it gives us a sense of identity doesn't it it's like oh no, this is how i am a little bit different or this is what i am into and then you know you'll find a certain group that that you would connect or, or click with or not you find your tribe i guess as you'd call it now i mean i'm intrigued you talked about and so you after after you sort of went from engineering to sort of practical philosophy and mindfulness did you say you became a teacher and the children were taught meditation that's right yeah yeah uh, the philosophy school that i went to for the for adults they had been going on for decades and back in 1975 they'd started a children's school where all the children learnt the normal subjects but they also were taught meditation or forms of mindfulness and the whole school had a silent time, or quiet time, I think they called it, at the beginning of the day for 10 minutes and at the end of the day for 10 minutes. And at the beginning and end of every single class for about 30 seconds, there was, a, there was just a pause. And it was really powerful, actually. The, you know, the quiet time, at first, you know, the children you know, are not used to it. But after a while, they feel very comfortable in that quiet time, whether they're, they didn't have to do a particular meditation they could just do some coloring in or something like that if they want um but about half or more of them did some form of meditation and and the whole school was quiet at the same time so it's a sense of relief for the children probably more even for more so for the teachers um unfortunately because they had this quiet time it ended up giving them even more energy because as they, 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 their mind was calm they had some time to recharge i found that uh, the, the children were quite energetic actually in between that's remarkable. Uh, but yeah, it was it was uh, a very really interesting school. Yeah, and what what's what school? Where is it? Uh, it was in Twickenham. It was called St James School, but now I think it's moved further out into Isha, and they have a girls' school, a children's school, and they've got schools all around the world now. They've got a school in Olympia because I I was saying that's interesting because that was the school I my my children yes. went to that school. <laughs> You're joking, St and James School? No, they went to St James School for that very yeah. reason. Um, and I, I, I sorry, wow. I, sh I shouldn't be telling you, I was going, that's how I haven't heard of another school like this. This is why I was asking. And <laughs> because the, the other wonderful thing about that school is they only sell, they only, they only serve vegetarian food because it's about fresh food. And, you that's know, right. and I think there were, and they, I mean, there was so many, one, I mean, that, that's a, such a brilliant coincidence that we've got that, we've got that common ground and our paths have never yeah. crossed before. <laughs> brilliant. 
Well, it, it's it is one of those. It is it is quite a remarkable place when you when you go there. And I think those the yes, the quiet time and um, well, I mean all sorts of wonderful things we can talk about there, in, including uh, learning Sanskrit, which I think was just brilliant. Not so much because of the language, because I think what it opens up in their minds about language and understanding and where everything ultimately came from. So, uh, yeah, we were in Thailand and we were with some monks and they, the monks were a bit blown away that my young daughter then could uh, read some of the Sanskrit, <laughs> uh, which I don't think you've ever encountered before. <laughs> So in terms of your journey, because I think one of the one of the coolest things, I don't, and I don't know a huge amount about the, the sort of the journey that you've been on, but one of the things that made me sit up and go, oh, that's very cool. You wrote Mindfulness for Dummies. Yes. And so <laughs> that's, um, how long ago did you publish that? So that was published in 2010. And it's a bit of a funny story behind it, actually. I was um, reading, I was trying to understand CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. I'd read a few books on it. Didn't make too much sense. So I thought, okay, maybe I'm a dummy. I need to get the dummies book. And I'd never read one of these dummies books before. I thought, okay, let's give it a go. It'll probably be very simplistic. But actually, it was written by a, a, a good therapist and it was really well written. So, you know, I was holding this book in my hand and I was, I think I was talking to my brother at the time and it was in America. And uh, he said, yeah, you're always talking about mindfulness. You're teaching mindfulness. There must be a mindfulness for dummies. And so I, I Googled it at the time and it didn't exist. So I went to the website dummies.com, clicked on contact. And I said, you know, I teach mindfulness, but you know, how come there's no mindfulness for dummies? And I forgot about it. And about a month or two later, they replied to me saying, oh, we don't know much about this mindfulness for dummies thing. We'd love to meet you to just tell us what it is so i had a meeting with these two lovely editors and they're like wow this is this is interesting uh we'd like you know how about if you were to write the book you know what would the what would you know what would you include in it and, and one co- one thing led to another <laughs> and they ended up giving me a contract like that just like that uh to write the book and i was a school teacher at the time but i was also teaching mindfulness and ended up publishing this book and it just caught the wave when there was an interest in mindfulness so, you know, they invited me to write four or five more other dummies books on the back of that one. Uh, and I ended up, that's when I quit my job as a school teacher in 2010 to, to teach mindfulness full time. And since, since, since quitting and uh, taking that bet on yourself and going to do something, uh, a departure from that, what, what, sort, what, what, what journey have you been on since 2010? Wow, interesting. It was like one of the toughest decisions and one of the best decisions uh, that I made. I remember I had a resignation letter in my pocket and I was just <laughs> I was walking to work every day for about two months with this resignation letter until the absolute last day and on the last hour I put the letter on the head teacher's desk. But it, it turned out to be one of the best decisions because of you know, we talked about this idea of being a bit of a misfit earlier on and there's all sorts of things that you have to do as a teacher and all the rules you need to obey and the structure of the, of the school day and just being free of that gave, just made me feel so much better to start with. So I had a bit more freedom in how I was going to use my time. 
And although it was tough at the beginning, you know, uh, my income dropped 10x uh, in the wrong, the wrong side of 10x, going down 10x rather than up 10x. But I, you know, I first of all started by teaching mindfulness. And because people had read the book abroad as well as here, I kept being asked to help them to learn how to teach mindfulness. So I did that one-to-one and webinars was just a new new idea. There was no such thing as Zoom then. But one of my friends said, why don't you try teaching in a webinar? And I said, that's such a bad idea. You can't teach meditation online. It has to be in person. Uh, but he eventually persuaded me and it, and, it, and it was such a pleasant experience. And we had this sense of community that really felt connected with each other and it was a global community so you had you know you ended up becoming friends with people all over the world and so i i i think i was one of the first ones to do that in terms of training mindfulness teachers and so then it just it that that continued up to this day and that was in i think 2012 or 2013 and i do that three times a year and i've and i've continued to do it to this day uh, so that's you know that's not my I, i'm into other things linked to mindfulness which i could talk about but yeah, that's something that I have continued. And and how many people join you each time? How many people sign up and take part? Yeah, it varies between about 20 people and the most we've had is about 50 people in each group. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. So what other things have you got up to involving mindfulness? Yeah, so after kind of getting into mindfulness, I started to read about Uh, related topics and one thing that I got interested in was the field of psychology positive psychology which some of you may have heard of the science of well-being or the science of happiness and I ended up meeting up with a friend and we're trying to brainstorm an idea for how we could reach more people to educate them on some of the findings from positive psychology and I don't know how the idea came to us we thought there's all these different museums, weird and wacky ones. What about museum for happiness? Would that would that work? Is that does, does that make sense? And whenever we we mentioned the idea or just said the word museum of happiness, it just made people smile straight away. And we thought that was a good sign, but we had no idea how to start a, a physical museum or didn't have the funds for it. So we just started doing events, and we did two or three or four in person events, and we we got this nice pattern of you know mindful activities as well as things like yoga or energizing activities laughter yoga was quite a popular one and then it came to the what's supposed to be well what the media called the most depressing day of the year the third monday in january so we thought let's let's be the antidote for the most depressing day of the year make it into you know a day of positive well-being and, and so we, we we did our first pop-up museum of happiness in spitterfields market and we were hoping to get our record number which was 100 uh, but we got really lucky it the the post went viral on facebook and you know one minute we had three or four people coming and then the next day i checked my phone and a million people had seen that facebook page and it had gone to the maximum of ten thousand tickets either free or donation tickets and I was like, oh, my God. And then even Spitterfield's market started getting worried because of, you know, all the different media from around the world started contacting them. And there's someone who's the Minister of Happiness in, in Dubai and she wanted to come over. And it was really, really fun. You know, ended up on Sky TV and stuff. And we had this amazing event, this three days. It was a really magical event. Thousands of people came. And, you know, it was middle of winter. It was snowing. Uh, but we had people doing uh, the laughter yoga and we had a gratitude tree where people could write what they were grateful for. Uh, we had like mindful Bollywood dancing and we had mindful meditations by me. And 
Uh, we had a ball pit where people could jump in, just like an adult ball pit before before they were that popular. Uh, so we had all these fun activities, and and so uh, you know it became a thing. This Museum of Happiness, and we ended up you know setting up one physical space and another one, but due to the pandemic and other stuff, we don't have a physical space anymore. Uh, and the co-founder I started with, I've passed the project on to her, so she she runs it now and she trains. Uh, well-being teachers and things like that so that was one of the the side projects that came off from from my work um this museum of happiness that was fun and then the other the other one that uh, i've got very passionate about is a thing many people haven't heard of but there's a huge amount of research it's a thing called act acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training and just to give you an idea of the level of research on this subject uh, there's been over 3,000 studies on it since the 1980s, uh, when the World Health Organization was looking for a way to manage stress and resilience globally, they chose actors as their go-to approach. Uh, and Olympic medal winners have used it, you know, gold medal winners have used uh, the findings from ACT to help them. It's been used in many businesses around the world, and it's considered one of the fastest growing therapies in the world. But it's one of these things where, you know, although it's very rapidly growing and, and popular in, in, in this bubble, the general public don't know about it. But essentially, and it links nicely with, with, with your work, it's all about helping to develop what they call psychological flexibility. The ability to focus on what makes your life meaningful and how to cope with the thoughts and feelings and bodily sensations and all the blocks that you have and the, the, the difficult thoughts that come to your head or the you know, overwhelming emotions, the, the sadness, the anxiety. How do you deal with all that stuff and yet still focus on how to make your, your life meaningful? And the reason why I think it connects really well and interestingly with what you do is because one of the concepts from psychological flexibility is cognitive flexibility, which is the ability to ultimately unhook from your thoughts, step back from your thoughts. And the research shows that as you develop cognitive flexibility, as you get less caught up in your thoughts, your tr creativity goes up. And so psychologists have done these, these various experiments where they would teach exercises and, and notice how, you know, when they do certain creativity tests, whatever creativity tests, I, I can share one or two examples, but the, when they do those tests, they find people are more creative and they're able to think more out of their usual rigid thinking as they become more more flexible in a cognitive way. So yeah, so that's my that's the thing that I'm really passionate about now, ACT, and I, and I train people in ACT as well as mindfulness. This is new to me, I have to say. I didn't, uh, I hadn't, hadn't heard of ACT before. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. Could we go a little bit deeper into just sort of what's involved, maybe where, where you get started, or you were saying, you know, some, some of the tests you can run or, or things like that. I'd love to hear more. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I could just briefly share the story of how ACT got developed. So it was a, it was a psychologist called Dr. Stephen Hayes. And, you know, there was the, it was in the 70s. He was a young psychologist, a young professor. And uh, he saw a couple of professors arguing in his, in his uh, lecture theatre area. And he tried to stop the argument, but suddenly his heart was racing so much when he tried to stop it, no words came out of his mouth. And he felt really awkward in this moment, but felt very, very anxious. And this, this uh, what you could call a panic attack or anxiety attack, it just happened again and again. It kept, it kept happening. So he started to use all the techniques that were known to psychology at the time, 
the CBT type exercises, relaxation exercises. But these panic attacks kept coming. He, you know, he got his students to teach the lectures. He he because of he started to feel anxious. Then he used to play videos uh, to, for you know so that the students could watch videos, but his hands would be shaking to play the video. It it, it kept increasing. And even when he did a relaxation exercise, you know, he'd be like, you know, just oh, nice and calm now. The actual relaxation exercise would even trigger the panic because it got linked up. And then he had this real moment of low, but also a moment of high. And when he woke up in the middle of the night thinking that he was having a heart attack, so he woke up and he was sweating and his you know, arm was aching and he was convinced that he was having a heart attack. But rather than calling the ambulance, he had this imagery or this this image of him calling the ambulance ending up in hospital and the person at hospital saying this is not a heart attack this is just a, a panic attack and he felt really really low he, he hit rock bottom at that point but i would say he had a bit of a spiritual awakening in that moment too because of when he hit that rock bottom we thought this things can't get any worse than this because it was so painful he became the observer of his thoughts he suddenly realized that he does, his, his thoughts were like a dictator his whole life, telling him what to do and what not to do. And finally, he decided, I'm going to stop running from this dictator within. He became the observer of it. And as soon as he, he knew in that moment that his whole life has changed, as soon as that awakening happened. But being a psychologist and being a very good scientist, very rigorous, he couldn't just say, you know, you just need to do this and, you know, you have this spiritual awakening. He wanted to know what was happening psychologically. And so he spent decades and decades of research, um, first of all, creating a, lang a theory about language and thoughts and how thoughts and language work and building and building and building up on that. And because of the, the way that the research has been carried out, the findings from his research or the findings of ACT can be applied in a very creative and open way. But essentially, they, they found things that, you know, intuitively make sense now, but it's got a nice evidence behind it too. So ACT is about being more psychologically flexible, but it can be made up of three different elements. Number one, being present, simple one that, you know, you, you know people use the word mindfulness, you can also use that, being present. The second one is opening up, so being open to your thoughts and feelings rather than blocking them again intuitively it makes sense to step back and observe them this is a real tough one for most of us and the third element is about taking action that's meaningful a values-based action so if you cultivate these three qualities and there's very creative ways of doing them all you end up living a more meaningful life and you need those three together now those three end up being broken down into six actually ultimately uh, so in one it's being more flexible psychologically in three it's about being present open and meaningfully engaged and if you want to really break it down into the six separate ones uh, i'll just quickly say it just for for reference for people step one is acceptance allowing making space for our emotions uh, the second one is called unhooking which is what helps to with the creative stuff which is unhooking from your thoughts and there's some really fun ways of doing that t is is a really interesting one uh, so I'm saying the word T because I'm using an acronym in my head. It's about connecting with your observing self or you could even call it your transcendent self. But this is not from a, a hippie, airy-fairy spiritual. This is from hardcore mental health scientific research. If we can connect to that part of us that observes ourselves, 
rather than identifying with our difficulties and challenges. Very good for our well-being. Fourth one is being present. Fifth one is about being clear. What is what are our values? What makes our life enriching? Um, what what makes us feel alive? You know, it could be being creative. It could be about being kind. It could be about being curious. It could be about learning new things. It could be connecting with people. Everyone has things that are meaningful for them. So, so being clear about that is the fifth one. And finally, and this is how it's different from your normal mindfulness courses, it's about action. You need to take action to turn those values into something that, that is meaningful for you. So what I like about ACT is it is about taking action, not just about meditating or anything like that, for example. Um, and the way to learn it is also flexible. You can learn it from a book. There's a book called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, or there's another popular one called The Happiness Trap. You know, you can do courses by those people. You can do courses with me. Uh, there's no fixed curriculum that you have to follow, which says then you are an ACT teacher or an ACT practitioner. You know, there'll be there'll be some that are better than others, I guess. Um, but they've kept the whole thing open and flexible, and that's why why it's kind of grown so quickly i'm just um i'm just reflecting on some of what you've said there and i'm sort of looking through here and thinking i i I can recognize a lot of the value in um doing these things particularly i enjoyed listening about the clear values and the things that will allow you um to do great work but i wanted to skip back and ask you about uh, step two, which I think you call the unhooking bit. And you said you had a few examples of how you might be able to unhook. I might be asking for a friend <laughs> on this one. So... <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, um, there's some really interesting ones here. So the technical word for this element is called cognitive diffusion. Um, but you can simply think of it as unhooking. <laughs> what? So one example of this I was just reading earlier is a technique called disobey on purpose. Disobey your mind on purpose. And you can do this if you're listening to this podcast now, you know, if you're not driving, you say say in your mind, I cannot wave my arms. You really think that, that thought really clearly, that like, I can't move my arms, you know, I'm, my arms are fixed, I cannot move my arms. And as you're saying that thought, slowly lift your arms up and move your arms around. I cannot move my arms, I cannot move my arms, I cannot move my arms. Now, as you do that simple exercise, which only takes 30 seconds, what you're doing is creating a disconnect between what your thoughts are saying, or what you could call the dictator is saying, and the action you're actually choosing to do. And they've done some really interesting research on this. So if you do that, this little activity that I've just shared, like I cannot move my arms, or you just say, I cannot walk, I cannot walk, I cannot, and you walk around the room, or you can, you can do it you know, for anything. You create this diffusion, this unhooking, and then um, they, when, in the experiments, they do things like they ask people to place their hands on you know, something, something hot. It's not going to burn their hands, but it's going to be really hot. And they found when people had done the diffusion exercise, they're able to hold their hand on that hot plate for 40% more. They were less fused with what their thoughts were about what they could achieve or not achieve. Another experiment they did is with little blocks of ice where, you know, one group, they tell them, 
you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And they get them to hold uh, some ice for as long as possible. And let's say they could hold it for 30 seconds. The other group, they did this diffusion exercise that I just taught, and then they get them to hold the ice and they find that they can hold the ice for, I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say 30 or 40% longer. So by by doing this disobeying on purpose, you there seems to be, it doesn't seem to be very difficult to do, but you create this disconnect between what your dictator in your mind is saying and what you're actually able to achieve. And so that's kind of one way of freeing yourself up. Um, another really unusual one, another unusual technique, is when you actually write down your negative thought on a piece of paper. And rather than trying to get rid of that negative thought, you actually put it in your pocket. So if your negative thought is like, you know, I, I, can't, I can't give a, a talk at work, okay? So I can't give a talk at work and that keeps coming into your head. And you've been trying to get rid of that thought for months or years stuck there. You take it, you write it on a piece of paper, you take it on a piece of paper and you actually put it in your pocket. Now that, that you, you may think, hang on a minute, that doesn't seem like you're unhooking to it. It seems like you're kind of stuck with it. But what you're doing is that you are showing your mind that your mind can have whatever thought it wants, but you get to decide what to do rather than the mind so it's actually an empowering act rather than a disempowering act. The disempowering act is you constantly trying to get rid of these thoughts and they keep coming back to you. You know, there's that simple experiment where you just say, you know, don't think of flying pink elephants and the harder you try not to think of it, the more it comes back to you. And it's the same with these difficult thoughts we have. When we try to get rid of them, they, they come back. But actually putting it on a piece of paper and put it in your pocket, walk around, try it for a few days, look at it sometimes, create that distance between you and the thought and you choose what to do rather than the thought. And another funny one, which is, this is a really weird one, but it worked for me, is actually singing the thought to a tune, like a tune like Happy Birthday. So when I looked deeper into my thoughts, there was the thought, you know, I'm not good enough. I found that that under, underlied a lot of my thoughts. So I thought, okay, let me do this unhooking exercise. And one of them is you sing it to a tune of Happy Birthday. So I actually tried it. I thought this is so stupid, but let me try it. You know, I am not good enough. I am not good enough, etc. So I sung it and it just made me laugh the first time. And then I did it a few more times. And then I noticed that the emotional tone connected to that negative thought had almost disappeared completely, actually. You know, for some people, the, the effect isn't so strong. But I found, you know, it's not it doesn't matter to me so much and, and that thought doesn't have the negative emotion that it was that that was strongly held within me beforehand there's there's hundreds of exercises like this and the nice thing is that they've been well tested as well uh, so there's some examples of ways to unhook from your thoughts you mentioned um you run a course so typically why might someone or what's going on for someone that might want to come and do a course with you? Well, I think about half the group tend to be people who want to share this with others, actually. So it tends to be like mindfulness practitioners or teachers or therapists, and they want to learn more about this because like you, they haven't really heard about it and they get surprised by the evidence behind it. And they just want, oh, this is really interesting. Let me learn this so I can share this with others. And then there's some people... Uh, who just feel quite stuck, actually. The, the, the beautiful thing about ACT is it can really help people who've been stuck for years. Um, one of the things ACT doesn't focus on is trying to make you feel happier or trying to get rid of your anxiety or your low mood. 
but 99% of the time it does have that effect. But sometimes people, let's say if you have anxiety, you've you've had this anxiety for years, you've tried this therapy, that therapy, this approach, that approach, but no matter what you do, that anxiety doesn't go away and you feel like giving up. And then this act thing comes along and it says, you know what? You don't have to get rid of it. It's a feeling, it's an uncomfortable feeling, but it's there for a reason, it's there to teach you something. What if we focus, rather than trying to get rid of this thing that you've been trying to get rid of your whole life, what about if we focus on what makes your life enriching, empowering, what makes you feel excited, which you've probably forgotten about because you haven't focused on this for such a long time. What about if we think about, remember how you used to play the piano and how much you used to love it? How about if we focus on that, even though it makes you feel anxious? Or how about meeting up with those friends that you used to love meeting up with so much, but you're scared to now? What about if we do that and we learn to make space for this anxiety to be there with that activity? Let's see what happens. Let's give you some skills. Let's, you know, you know, do the card activity or some other activity to deal with the thoughts that you're having. But let's let's open up to feeling whatever we're feeling. And so finally, after decades, people feel, okay, so I don't need to there's you know, there's nothing wrong with me for being anxious or or being sad or or feeling angry, I can have that feeling and still move forward. And when people do that, they start focusing on the getting rid of stuff, it actually frees them up, it creates some space, breathes some air into their life, and their their life starts to expand rather than contract as it may have done for a long time. Amazing. I hope you don't mind me sharing this. It's a it's a it's a Bruce Lee quote, and I and at times Bruce Lee I think ha, ha, says has some has some great quotes. You may know this one, but he does say, "Do not ask for an easy life." He said, "Ask for a hard life, but also for the body with which you can withstand it." And I think it's that's the you know <laughs> it's those it's those hard things, right? But it, it's kind of like yeah, go the long way around, take the difficult path. And sometimes things are thrown at you and you're, you're facing them and you don't really want to deal with them. But in fact, if you can find a way of dealing with them, I can understand what you're saying now about, you know, life starts to expand because you can overcome these things and you just breathe them in and you breathe them out again and you sort of uh, move on. How nice. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. That reminds me. That's that's a great quote, and it reminds me of a, a quote in Act, which is very popular as well. Which is, "We hurt where we care, and we care where we hurt." And so that place where there is difficulty and pain, the reason it's painful, is because if there's something there that matters to us. Social anxiety is a good example. We feel anxious when you connect with others socially. Why? Because you care about what they think about you. You care about relationships that's why the anxiety comes up there and so our mind says oh the solution is to avoid let me try and make my life easier i just won't meet up with people but no then you then you're getting rid of that part of you which is caring you know what you love what's meaningful what has what's linked to your values and i think that's why probably bruce lee <laughs> links with what bruce lee is trying to say there is the the difficult path is the meaningful path and as you learn to have the courage to move there with, with the right strength of body and strength of mind, the openness of mind. I mean, and one of his, another one of his quotes is, be like water, my friend, isn't it? Because <laughs> one of it my is. friends recommended one of his books. It's called Be Like Water. So it's that sense of flexibility and to, to have that flexibility to move towards the difficulties rather than being rigid. And I think, I think he'd quite like ACT. <laughs> I, I, think you, I think you would. 
Now, I I have a, a a burning question, and I think you are the best qualified person I know who might be able to help me get started on an answer. And I say get started on an answer because I think this is well. It might be really simple. You might be able to say no or yes. But <laughs> can you have can can you have too much mindfulness? Interesting question, which I have almost never been asked that question. So it's a good one. Now it depends how you define mindfulness. I remember an example of when I overdid mindfulness and I almost got run over. <laughs> And that was um, when I first learned mindfulness, I tried to be absolutely in the here and now, the present moment. And I was doing that to such an extent that I, you know, and getting far too carried away that, you know, even when I was trying to cross the road, I wasn't able to properly judge distance. Like, you know, I could see a car coming over there, but in a few seconds, it's going to be right up to me. And also struggling, you know, I remember trying to drive the first week or two when I was Getting, going too far with mindfulness and actually forgetting where I was going. I was just driving and being really present and noticing the, the, the feeling of my hands on the steering wheel and looking where I'm going, but I actually didn't know where I was going. So um, if you think of mindfulness as just being in the absolute present moment, then I would say that's not helpful in all times. And so that I think you, you would be getting carried away in it and it wouldn't be a good, good idea for your life. If you think of mindfulness as the ability to be flexible with your thoughts, and sorry, to be flexible with uh, your attention. So sometimes you need to be focused and present. Sometimes you need to reflect on the past. Sometimes you need to think about the future. Um, but it's done in a more conscious way rather than in an automatic way. So your mind doesn't constantly go back and forth, past and future, or get hooked to negative thoughts telling you what you can't do or what you can't achieve. So when there's this flexibility of attention, then I don't think it, you can be too mindful. Um, but if you think of mindful as just rigidly being in the present moment, then I don't think you can re really function very much or very easily. There is a time when that is helpful, which is like when you're doing mindfulness meditations to take a break from this constant doing and achieving and planning. Um, but in ACT as well, when, when ACT talks about mindfulness, it's about this ability to flexibly fluidly and voluntarily move your attention so it's not your attention isn't being grasped by the the outer world but you're choosing where to shine the spotlight of your awareness and sometimes it needs to be wide and open and sometimes it needs to be narrow and focused and that there's parts of the brain that actually manage that and, and that's that's the important thing So there was something that I think it was an Alan. I'm quite a fan of the Alan Watts recordings. There's there are there are many of them, and you know, and they've been labelled all sorts of different things. So you never know if you've heard them all or not. There just seems to be this, and I think that 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 in itself is quite interesting. But the point I was going to make is he he sometimes talks about meditation. It's like medication. You don't need it all the time. There are certain times when you need to use it, and certain times when you just it if you've done it enough there are there are certain things that it just sort of you've got those skills and i think that's what you were saying there is just you know after a certain amount of practice you've you have changed some of those pathways you have changed how you react to certain situations and then there are times then you can almost use it like a 
I shouldn't say like a pill, but you know, it's like, it's, it's almost like, oh, or a good night's sleep. It's like, no, I need, I need a good night's sleep or I need to go and spend an hour just to calm everything down. And that's how, as someone who meditated every day for about three years and was given a load of statistics on how much I'd um, <laughs> meditated, which I thought something was very, very wrong with that. Um, I, and that was partly what was behind my question, you know, can you stress yourself out by someone else meditating more than you? But actually that was where I, that's where I sort of got to and my own, own thoughts on this was um, how, you know, you, you can then start to use it much more tactically as in when you need it, if you've kind of raised the bar overall. Uh, I liked your analogy of sleep. Like, you know, sleep is great, but sleeping all day and all night, all the time is obviously not a good idea. So, you know, there's there's a, a right and a wrong time for everything. And just like sleep and just like exercise, you can over-exercise, you can certainly oversleep. And potentially, it's an interesting one about over-meditation because, you know, if you look at the monks' brains, uh, when they scan them, they have huge, high, very high levels of well-being. So it do, they don't seem to have done uh, any damage to their brain as such. Whereas with excessive sleep and excessive exercise, I think you can do. But that kind of lifestyle obviously isn't for everyone. And uh, a measured amount of, of meditation along with our other activities is a good idea. And the other thing that I've seen interesting research on is the, is the value of mind wandering, which is some people would say the opposite of mindfulness but i've seen research is you know when you allow your mind to wander and be free and and stop controlling it so much you can actually end up having some nice creative thoughts and ideas and, and lots of people talk about how they're having a bath or a shower or, or going for a walk and, and they have this amazing creative idea and i don't think they were practicing mindfulness as such they, they'd actually let go of controlling their mind and that, that that idea came to them well i think there is something very special in going for a walk or simply just you know breaking out of your environment and doing something different but i think walking is a, a really big one i uh, any opportunity to read about people's creative routines in fact there's a very good book on sort of authors creative routines and artists creative routines mm -hmm. and and I mean, I've, I've picked these things up in various different places, but a, a, a lot of them, I mean, it sounds like such an obvious thing to say, doesn't it? But so often you can actually forget to go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. Like today I was, I was stuck, I, I was stuck on uh, a project and, you know, trying to think about what to do. And I know that if I just carried on spending hours and hours on it, it would probably be mostly wasted time or racking my brain. So yeah, I just went for a walk and a little jog and just did doing something different. And I actually consciously said, I think maybe because we were recording this podcast as well. I'm like, you know, I need to come up with a creative solution. But me trying to think of a creative solution is not going to work. Let me just forget it completely. Enjoy the sunshine. Enjoy the walk. Enjoy being present and, and let the idea come when, it, when it's the right time. I guess incubate is part of that process that's happening there. Yeah. I often refer to having two processes. There's, there's one you just sort of go, right, I'll just put it back there for a few days somewhere else and i know something will you just sort of have to trust yourself that that problem's going to get solved without actually thinking about it but then that's i think that's something that i got from meditation as well because it's not about trying to think through everything and try and figure it out which is my which is my normal uh sort of yeah. front brain bit it's the it's the back brain it's like yeah 
chuck it chuck it over there for a while <laughs> and see what comes back. And often it just pops out of nowhere and you don't even realize it doesn't even really get credit. It's just it's just there on your desk in the morning. <laughs> oh, wow, that's remarkable. Well, you have to write it on a piece of paper. But that's that's typically what happens. Yeah, that's a good one. I uh, one of the things that I try to do as well if I'm if I'm walking if I'm walking to the studio is to try and walk different routes all the time. Never ever look at my phone if I'm out walking, let alone use it, you know, and it has to be look up. I spend a lot of time trying to look up at the tops of buildings and get that different perspective. And I kind of, it, it's just like, it's quite a remarkable thing, but that's, that's the streets of London currently. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I read a book recently called Digital Minimalism and I took up some of the challenges. One of them is to leave your phone behind when you, when you go for a walk and it's quite hard for me at the beginning because I'm quite used to having my phone to listen to something. But uh, I left it behind and now I really, I rarely take my phone with me on walks and it makes a huge difference. If you haven't tried it, if anyone listening hasn't tried it, try it. It just feels like such a relief and a release that, that you're not expecting and and it naturally generates some mindfulness and creativity that, that you don't have to actually make an effort to do. Very good. So thinking about your work and what you're you're currently doing is there is there anything that uh the sense network could do to help you in your in your work or is there any perspective that would be helpful to you well i just love this uh, the, the idea of, of cognitive diversity and I'm, I'm new to the sense network so i'm just uh, finding out about it but i see that how you kind of bring people together in, in different ways online and in person and you know having had the opportunity to be to be able to connect more in person, I think we all appreciate it a little bit more. So one of the things that um, I'm going to think about doing is, you know, I'm starting to do this weekly walk in, in North London. If anyone's around, um, we could have this little uh, group of misfits going for a walk together. <laughs> it could be quite interesting. It might all go in different directions, but at least we'll start in the same place. Uh, so that could be fun. Maybe, maybe potentially uh, coming together on a walk could be fun. Another interesting idea that popped into my head uh, earlier today is, you know, it's called the Sense Network. So maybe I or a few people could come together and create three-minute meditations on connecting with your senses. So it'd be almost like a pool of different guided meditations that different people create that are like little mini activities to connect with your senses. I don't know if that, that's appropriate for the sense network, but just using the word sense and connecting with our senses and how that links to, to, to my work on mindfulness, that could be a I, fun, fun project. I love that. In fact, my, my, it, it definitely got my synapses firing off when you mentioned that, because sometimes, you know, counterintuitively, you think about, you, sometimes you, can, you have different senses that are dominant. And sometimes it's about taking um, sort of act, actually stopping them. I mean, the reason I mentioned this, the story I was thinking about was um, we were doing some work on sensories once and trying to get a different perspective on, it was actually to do with feet and soles of shoes. So we were working on a, a new pair of uh, sneakers and it was, but it was all about feeling and how you could actually get more feeling. And one of the things that we did uh, was work with a blindfold Kung Fu expert. So that was, I mean, I've 
trained a lot in 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 kung fu i did a lot of that but it was actually getting a a design team and an executive team to to blindfold themselves and it's quite remarkable you know obviously there has to be some trust uh for that to be done but actually just how the other senses start, start to spark up when you um when you have that deprivation and you take things away so to think about yeah meditations based on the senses to try and and the different senses i i think that could be a huge amount of fun i'd love to work on that with you yeah that would be brilliant that is a great idea you know i love that i love that yeah the deprivation it definitely heightens the other senses i was uh i was reading a book called breath recently and and the guy blocked his nose up for about a week uh to do you know it's to do with breathing but one of the things that he noticed is when he when he unblocked his nose he was almost overwhelmed by the power of the sense of smell that he could he could pick up, which had been which had been blocked off, and it really made him appreciate that that sense that we have available to us. Amazing. I f- I feel we could have talked for so much longer, and particularly around the the deprivation. I was going to sort of I've got this whole thing about fasting, but I've talked about <laughs> that before. I went ten days without eating once. That wow. was that was pretty remarkable when you start doing that. So I'm going to have to say thank you very much. I feel like I'm going to have to come. We're going to yes. go on a walk. We're going to we're going to do that. We're going we'll take a walk around. Hampton. Absolutely, absolutely. Shamash, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing more about what you do. I'm going to have to go and do some more reading, and uh, I hope I hope this conversation will inspire others to go and expand their minds and read a bit more about ACT as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for your questions and your curiosity. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Extreme Perspectives, brought to you by Sense Worldwide. We'd love you to join this conversation using the hashtag Extreme Perspectives. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review. The Sense Network collaborates with many of the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Join us at thesensenetwork.com or get in touch via email hello at senseworldwide.com.